Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 278 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, this was a fun one. Ian Morgan Cron is back on my podcast. I interviewed him before. In fact, the backstory to this is I had heard all about the Enneagram, and I was kind of suspicious, and I'm like, you know, I'm not going to do the Enneagram. And then I read The Road Back to You, drank the Kool-Aid like everybody else, went out and bought uh, copies for everyone in my family, for my entire staff, Uh, went through all the assessments uh, for our entire team. It's amazing. And then had Ian on the podcast within a month of me reading the book. So that was kind of fun. And then he, we hit it off and he said, hey, why don't you come on my podcast? And what happened was he wanted to talk about my last book, didn't see it coming. And he started to analyze it through the lens of the Enneagram. And even though I was a guest on his podcast, we kind of flipped the tables and I ended up interviewing him on his show. So there you go. Once an interviewer, always an interviewer. And uh, he loved it. And I said, hey, do you mind if I share this with my listeners too? By the way, if you haven't subscribed to Ian's uh, top-rated podcast, one of the biggest on the internet, it's called Typology, and it's a great podcast. So we'll link to that in the show notes. Anyway, Ian, welcome back, and uh, fun to be able to do this with you, and honored to be a guest on your podcast as well. So uh, with all that in mind, you're going to have a lot of fun with Ian Cron, and The Road Back to You is a fantastic book. If you haven't yet explored the Enneagram, well, make up your own mind, but uh, I was surprised how helpful it's been to me and to my team. And I uh, just want to say thank you so much for uh, all of your support, all of your encouragement for everybody who shares this on social for all of you who uh, write us little notes. I mean, we read them as a team every single week. And you guys are so encouraging. We're just here to help you try to lead better, to, to thrive in life and leadership. That's what we're trying to do. And one of the ways you can do that is by actually checking out what our partners have to offer you. We carefully vet our partners. I can't tell you how many times I've said no to people who have wanted to be on the podcast. And honestly, uh, walked away from potentially some very lucrative opportunities because I want to make sure that when you click through to one of our partners, you feel 100% served well. And so one of our longtime partners here has been trained up of Serve HQ. And uh, fall's a busy season. Ministry leaders are busy. Volunteers are busy. You're busy. You got a ton of things planned for fall and you need your team to get on their A game to pull it off with excellence. Well, the key to a great plan is execution and that can only happen with great communication. So how do you communicate with your church? Huddle Up is a brand new communication tool designed to help you communicate with your team in a simple all-in-one platform. So it's kind of like an app where you can take texting and video and email and just forget all the different channels and just have one. Um, You can use video on it. And as you switch from fall planning to execution, why don't you head on over to servehq.church and sign up for Huddle Up, their communication app, with a 14-day free trial just to see whether it actually makes communicating with your team members easier. I think you'll be blown away. So head on over to servehq.church, 14-day free trial for Huddle Up. And then what is your turnkey solution for your database? Uh, A lot of churches, I know this is a a subject of discussion among lead pastors and executive pastors. Well, my friends over at Church Community Builder create software that gives you everything you need to engage your congregation and grow disciples. So 20 years ago, when they started, they realized, uh, the founder realized that very few people at his church who were baptized actually stuck around in the long run. So he built Church Community Builder to solve that problem. So what does it do? Well, it helps you welcome people, get them plugged into community, Uh, prevents them from slipping through the cracks or out the back door. And their software handles everything from children's check-in to volunteer management, giving, events, facility scheduling, forms, right down to worship planning. It's the only tool you really need for that kind of ministry. They even have a mobile app to give you and your leaders information about people, notes, other tools on the go. If you care about engagement and discipleship, Church Community Builder is a must-have. So to celebrate 20 years of serving the church, they are offering 20% off 
to listeners of this podcast. You guys, I mean, people are so kind to us, aren't they? So you can go to churchcommunitybuilder.com forward slash carry to get started. That is the only website that you will get this discount at. So let them know I sent you by going to churchcommunitybuilder.com forward slash carry. So uh, thank you so much to our partners who continue to allow this show to come to you for free. And with that in mind, let's head on over to my conversation with Ian Morgan Cron. This is a uh, double podcast. Uh, this was originally broadcast on his Typology podcast. So here we go. Carrie, my dear friend, welcome to Typology. Hey, it's great to be here. What an honor. Thanks for having me, Ian. Well, I mean, I've been, I've been looking forward to this because I've been spending a lot of time with leaders lately. You know, I, I spoke at LeaderCast and then I recently spoke at Catalyst. And so, you know, you got rooms full of leaders and they're trying to understand themselves and the world in which they live so they can be, you know, optimal in their various roles. And um, so you are the leader dude. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but I spend a lot of time thinking about leaders too. And uh, when you start things, you get to be a leader, right? Because you just create something and then you say, hey, guess what? I'm the leader. So that's been my story for 25 years. Mm. And you are an Enneagram 8 leader. I am. Natural leaders. Yeah. It's, Natural it's leaders. Interesting. Probably your whole life, right? Your whole yep. life you've been a leader probably. Since I was a kid. Uh, and it's one of those things. It was so interesting because as I've shared on my podcast, I've had you as a guest, uh, I was late to the party. I've only been into the Enneagram thing toward the end of 2018. And I had some of my, my staff and friends texting me with like, I think you're a three or a seven or an eight. And then the closer people, like the closer people got to me, the more they knew me, they're like, you're totally an eight. And then when my long-term assistant, who's worked with me for a decade, emailed me, she and her husband, she's like, you are so eight, it's ridiculous. And then I finally took the assessment. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm an eight. Okay. My wife is like, yes, you are. And, and that's not always good news. As you know, you know, you can be an unhealthy eight or a healthy eight. And as a healthy eight, you save the world. As an unhealthy eight, you destroy it. So yeah, there's all that. Well, yes, of course, you guys are, are forces of nature and those forces can be positive or they can be negative. And I'm glad in your case that it's positive leadership. We, we are in the process of redemption. Shall we say that? That's a, that's a nice way to say it. Man, that's a good word for it. That's a really good word for it. All right, so I'm excited because I want to talk about your book, Didn't See It Coming. And the reason I'm excited to talk about it is when I first saw it, I thought that is the name or the title I could have used for a book introducing the Enneagram to people. Hmm. It's true, isn't it? It's about self-awareness. It's all these things that you didn't know were at play that are at play. And you're like, oh, that's what that is. I mean, that's how I felt when I read The Road Back to You. It's like, of course. And I mean, like laughing out loud at certain pages and almost crying at others. Mm. So as you think about the Enneagram and leadership, why should a, a leader know the Enneagram and their Enneagram type? Well, what fascinates me about it, Ian, and again, you know, I'm fairly new to the party, but I've, I've been at this a couple of decades and I've been leading teams for a long time. And I've run people through Myers-Briggs. I've run them through Strength Finders. I've run them through uh, other assessments like Right Path and, and so on and so forth. And they've, they've all got a role. Like they're all mm -hmm. helpful. Uh, and, and I'm a firm believer in assessments and self-assessments and 360s and the whole deal. But the Enneagram, I mean, particularly the way you have described it, it entered the vocabulary immediately. The challenge with a lot of other assessments is that you do them and like you even have to go back into your files to remind yourself, what did we pay for again? Or what did we, what did we learn? And uh, with the Enneagram, I mean, it shows up in our weekly staff meetings where my team is like, hey, this is like totally one of me, but just so you know, or um, hey, the nine in me wants to like, I don't know why it's so memorable and so portable, but it is. And it's, it's very, very accurate and it helps us understand each other a lot better. And then for myself, uh, I mean, that line in your book about, I, I think it's when you told people to read twice and underline and, you know, if they memorized it, you give them points or something. It was an eight doesn't need to be in control an eight just doesn't want to be controlled. That describes my entire life. Like so mm. much became clear in that moment where I'm like, oh yeah, that's exactly it. Because I've always said, well, 
I don't have to be the senior leader, but oh my gosh, I'm not going to work for that guy. Or, or, you know, don't make me come into the office at such and such a time. Or uh, there's just this like almost, almost like you're, you're, you know, someone's trying to tie you up and you're just kind of breaking free and you're like, no, I'm not going to get tied down that way. And that just so perfectly described my life and my team as they've gone through it and continue to go through it. Uh, they're saying this is so accurate in helping me understand myself and uh, helping the team figure it out. So to me, it lays at the gift level. It's just a gift. And so it's, mm. it's really helped me lead others better and it's helping me lead myself better. Mm. Yeah, self-leadership. I, I, uh, I frequently say to people, you have no business leading others if you don't know how to lead yourself first. Yeah, well, that is a game. And, and that is the hardest level of leadership. You know, as my friend Jeff Henderson said, of all the people I have to lead, the most difficult by far is myself. And I would agree with that. You know, self-leadership mm. never stops. It starts for me uh, with an hour in the morning that's really quiet, time with me and God, reading the scriptures, praying. And a lot of my prayer these days, and I've started journaling again this year, it's just like, well, where'd I screw up this time? And, you know, there's always a list. There's always a list. Yeah. And, and yeah. why do I do that? Like, why, why am I in this space? Why did that bother me? Why did I say that? Why did I feel that way? And, you know, you're not looking at stuff that gets you jail time. Um, but it's the question of <laughs> whether or not, you know, it's a question of whether or not people really want to be around you, whether you're really, you've got a marriage that's rich and deep. Uh, whether your relationships are solid or, you know, my tendency, which is just to throw myself headlong into stuff and ignore the important things in the name of things that are important. You know, that's the fun part about church leadership is you're doing stuff really important while you're ignoring it on the side. Mm. You know, I have been reading uh, this little book. There's a, do you know, uh, Alain de Botton? He's a sort of a contemporary thinker. He may I be don't. a Canadian. Really? No, I, I don't know that I, name. Maybe. Yeah. Anyway, he has a little group called the School of Life. Oh wow! Um, and if, check out their website; sure. it's fantastic. But they put out these really winsome, very well written books, and one of them is titled "Self Knowledge." Wow. And I am handing it out to everybody, to every leader I meet, just saying because I'm such a big proponent as mm. you are mm -hmm. uh, with leaders. You have to know yourself. So let me read you this quote. Because it ties right into your book, um, didn't see it coming. So listen, listen how he starts off this the book. He says, one of the most striking features of our minds is how little we understand them. Although we inhabit ourselves, we seldom manage to make sense of more than a fraction of who we are. It can be easier to master the dynamics of another planet than to <laughs> grasp what is at play in the folds of our own brains. Wow. Yes. <laughs> and you see, this is what I, I mean, this is a message I would have for leaders. I know it's a message you have for leaders, right? Yeah. Is that you can really only, how would I say this? Um, effective leadership is, can be correlated to how much you understand uh, what is driving your thinking, your yes. patterns of thinking, feeling, and acting, understanding other people's uh, personality patterns as well. Because ultimately, uh, when people say to me, I didn't see it coming, mm. I think to myself, that's because you probably assumed you knew yourself. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, it's interesting when it comes to self-awareness, uh, which I think the, the Enneagram is a masterclass in self-awareness and, of course, understanding team dynamics. But from my research anyway and, and some of the wider reading I've done, two of the greatest predictors of success in leadership are, one, emotional intelligence. And mm -hmm. uh, a big part of that is, is self-awareness. So self-awareness, self-regulation are two major components of emotional intelligence and it's the always the emotionally intelligent leaders that seem to do the best i mean you can look at that in daniel goleman's research you look at jim collins and what separates level four from level five leaders um a single quality which he didn't even want to include in the report and that was humility that there's this mm. steely 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 resolve like and the mission is bigger than me 
but a humility, not a grandiosity, not an ego. So, I mean, that is what I would call emotional intelligence, self-awareness, self-regulation. And then the second largest factor is communication skills, um, which is just your ability to communicate with the team, whether that is casting vision or answering emails in an appropriate way or being able to rally a team around a cause that is bigger than you. But you think about how big self-awareness uh, how big a role that plays in that because nobody nobody likes to work for leaders who are not self-aware. You know, the blind spot, you walk out thinking you've aced it and your team is all talking in the lunchroom about how awful it was and they're making fun of you behind your back and you you have no idea. Oh, or they go mm. home defeated and discouraged. You know, that's why Patrick Lencioni got into what he does today. And I mean, he's literally changed the lives of hundreds of thousands of leaders and he said, my dad had a good job, but he had a bad boss. And his dad would come home discouraged and defeated every day. And so Pat decided, you know, as he tells the story, that he wanted to go into helping people to become much better at the people part of leadership. And uh, that's so that's why I've become a student of the Enneagram, and I'm looking forward to going even deeper in it. Yeah. I was just listening to a, a podcast this morning with Jordan Peterson and General Stanley McChrystal. Oh, I just listened to that one last week. That's a fantastic you, interview. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yes, all about leadership. Yeah. And uh, they, they, as I recall, they touch on the whole issue of humility, which I think is one of the gifts of the Enneagram because yeah. unlike so many other personality assessments, typologies, however you want to view it, um, it just doesn't focus on what you're good at. Um, it, it it really reveals what happens, right, uh, when your particular personality is on autopilot and you don't see it coming. Yep. Yep. Yeah, no, that's very, very true. That That is a, anybody who hasn't heard that, that was on Jordan Peterson's podcast, was it not? Yes, and, it was. Uh, yeah, it was. It was. It was really, really good. Yeah, it was. Those two guys are genius. And Jordan Peterson is a great question asker, mm. so... If you've only heard the hype, you should actually listen to what he actually says because it's fascinating. Um, yes. Yeah, no, but I, I agree. I, and, and you look at McChrystal and the incredibly complex task he had in leading the military and, you know, humility and, or humility rather in military leadership don't often go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that's what, uh, you know, in, in the best assessments I've read and certainly my assessment of uh, me being an eight it's very sobering and it's very humbling. And as you say, all of the types are rooted in a sin. Mine happens to be lust, not in a sexual sense, but um, what intensity, human dynamos, right? So we yep. just, you know, I think you say in the road back to you, if anything's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. And my wife would say, right. that is absolutely correct. That so describes you, Carrie. And, uh, you know, why do it? Why do it a little when you could do it a lot? It's crazy. Right. So let's talk about, uh, in your book, Didn't See It Coming. Mm -hmm. You have, as I recall, you have seven yeah, sort of challenges. core yeah. challenges for leaders. Am I correct? Correct. Yeah. Which are, run us through them and maybe give us a sentence or two on each as to why these are challenges for leaders. Sure. So these are the ones, what I tried to do in this one was I tried to pick unlikely candidates because, you know, it, it could easily be like the challenges of team leadership or whatever. But I, I chose the area of self-leadership and not the public things, but the private things, the things that happen inside you as a leader. So, you know, this I knew was going to be a fun conversation because you focus on the internal and I'm focusing on the internal a lot too, because I would agree that self-leadership is the hardest thing. And I noticed in my, so these are things that I have personally experienced to one extent or another, but as I've had the privilege of working with thousands of leaders, I've seen them surface again and again, and there's not a lot of content out there on these issues. So take, for example, the first one I address in the book, which is cynicism. Mm. And I, I'm naturally an optimist. I, I now have a reclaimed optimism. I'm really excited about it at this point in life. But in my 30s, I kind of slid from optimism into cynicism. And I find we live in a very cynical age. A lot of leaders have grown cynical. So that's one of them. Uh, second challenge is compromise, moral compromise. And usually the challenge with that, Ian, is we think in terms of headlines. You know, you wake up in, in a bed and you're not with your wife or your spouse or you've stolen money or you do something that requires jail time. 
Um, you know, but that's not how moral compromise starts and that's not how it really expresses itself. And it's the subtle compromises in character to the point where you look at, okay, your current self, you go back a decade and you're like, uh, you're different. You've changed. You've compromised. You've given in. You've, you've, you're, you're almost ready to give up. You've given in so much. Well, where does that come from and how does that happen? And how do you, how do you look in the mirror and no longer respect yourself? So that's compromise. Mm. The third is disconnection. And you know, the weirdest part about disconnection is we live in the most connected age in human history, period, hands down. Um, yet we report feeling desperately alone. Mm-hmm. And what is that? Why, why is it that we live in a universe where you can have 500 friends and feel like nobody cares and you're constantly connected, but you're incredibly isolated? So I want to talk about that because isolation is a huge issue for a lot of leaders and frankly, for a lot of people. Uh, the fourth issue is irrelevance that uh, you start off as, as the kid that's, you know, the whiz kid, you're, you're doing great, everything's fantastic, you're the guy, you're the woman, and then you find yourself at 45 and uh, not quite as much of an edge, and at 50, nobody's listening to you anymore, and you can't even speak into the culture. What just happened with that? So that's irrelevance. Uh, number five is pride, and pride is just, uh, I'm sure that's a thing, it would be fun to talk about that through the lens of an eight, but, or three. So pride is a big issue for all of us because we're human beings. And there's narcissism, which I don't deal with a lot in Didn't See It Coming, because most of the leaders, particularly in the church space, most of the leaders that I run into, I don't think struggle with pride because of narcissism. They struggle with it because of insecurity. Mm. And if it depends on how you define pride. I define it as an obsession with self. And insecure people are very obsessed with themselves. Uh, How do I look compared to so-and-so? I can't have that person on my team. They're too smart. Uh, Things like that. So I I talk about that. And then we do burnout Mm. um, because I burned out when I was about 40. It was the most difficult year of my life. It was a very dark period. And I've come back from burnout and 13 years on the other side uh, have really never felt more alive. And I kind of map out that journey. And then finally, emptiness. You know, sometimes because we talked about this before, Ian, you know, you write a book, you're hoping somebody will read it. And all of a sudden, hundreds of thousands of copies are sold. And you're like, well, how did this happen? And it's exciting and it's exhilarating and it's wonderful. And all of a sudden you're on this stage in front of thousands of people. But I I saw this early on when I was in my 20s, I was in law because I did law before I did ministry. And I was surrounded by lawyers who had everything on the outside, but were empty on the inside. And I've had a few moments uh, where, well, actually a lot of my life has exceeded anything that I imagined it would. Uh, But if I'm not careful, if I don't cultivate this carefully, uh, I end up feeling so empty. And I'm like, what on earth is that? So those are the seven issues that uh, I try to address in the book. And those are the issues that I think either sink leaders to the point where they're no longer in leadership or they simply cap their potential. So you, you know, you think of yourself at 20, 25, you're excited, you're, you're passionate and soon your passion is kind of gone and you're settling and maybe you're phoning it in or you're in cruise control or you've got this numb feeling that's going through your life and you ask yourself, is this as good as it gets? And the answer is it can be a lot better, but here are seven of the factors that are often at play under the radar in leadership. Okay, this is very exciting. Uh, as you were Going through that list, mm-hmm. my mind was racing at a million miles an hour because I was thinking to myself, you know, each of the Enneagram types, obviously anybody can, any type of person, right? Any number on the Enneagram can struggle with cynicism, compromise, moral compromise, irrelevance, burnout, right. the emptiness of success, disconnection, pride. But I think certain types would gravitate toward one of these challenges more than others. I, I would love to have that conversation. Do you, do you want to you go there? You want to start with cynicism? Yeah. Take them in order? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, now I'm, you know, I'm kind of just thinking aloud here. No, that's great. But, um, well, for example, with cynicism, again, mm-hmm. any type can struggle. But right away, um, I think of ones. You know, right. ones are idealists, right? Ah. And... Um, uh, I can see when they uh, go to the low side of four under stress mm-hmm. and their idealism starts to vanish, you know, or feels thwarted. 
and they can sort of fall into kind of that depressed, uh, defeated um, state. They become very self-absorbed. They can become cynical and uh, nobody else wants to be, uh, you know, crusade along with me to perfect the world, uh, on and on and on. Fours can definitely lapse into cynicism, right? Right, the artistic uh, profile. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they can definitely. And actually, I think that for four, cynicism can function as sort of a defense system, right? It's mm. like, let's just be cynical at the outset so we don't have to be disappointed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Well, let's just get I it do. out of the way. Get it out of the way. <laughs> I was born cynical. You know, I've had people tell me that since the book came out. They're like, yeah, I was born cynical. I've, I was never an optimist, which is interesting. Yep. Now, I've seen fives be cynics. By the way, fives have wonderful senses of humor and but the, that sense of humor is inevitably uh, sort of cynical or sardonic, you know. It sort of has a dark, oh. funny edge. But but fives can be almost like too smart to be hopeful. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. They can, well, see, and you're, can, you're right because cynicism roots itself in knowledge. You're cynical not because you don't know, but because you do, right? And that's why age and cynicism are frequent companions because the more you know the more you realize, wow, human beings really are kind of not great all the time and life is tough. And and you're right, a five who accumulates knowledge would, would come by that maybe earlier and more intensely than others. Mm. Yes, and again, I think it's a defense, right? Yeah. Uh, and sometimes for uh, a five, it could be a defense against relationship and connection. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and eights definitely... Could yeah. could lapse into uh, into cynicism. Would you would you say eights are natural? Like, I guess there's probably no universal answer, but like I am naturally an optimist. Is that typical for eights, or or what would or is that like different? Yeah, no, I think a lot of eights can be, um, particularly an eight with a seven wing, right? You, and that's you've, me. You've eight got with a seven that, wing. Yep. Right, and so that that seven. You're getting flavored with the optimism and the silver lining of the seven there. Mm. Uh, who is, you know, uh, you know, if sixes in that headspace defend with pessimism, right? If they defend against anxiety with pessimism, then sevens defend against their sort of uh, buzz of anxiety that runs through their life with pe with optimism. Uh, okay, right. So they're both different ways. They're 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 two different sort of fear management systems, right? Pessimism and optimism. And, uh, but that eight with a seven, that would definitely flavor it toward the positive, the uh, we can do it, you know, sort of mindset. Um, so I definitely can see where you would have a, by nature, a uh, sort of a positive take on things with that eight with a seven wing. But I do think that eights uh, can, could lapse into that sort of dark furrowed brow kind of cynicism about the world. It'd well, be a little... It's really so interesting, dark. Ian, because for me, uh, I, I'd, I'd be curious in your take on this. Like I am an optimist and I will, I will find the positive in anything, right? When everyone else is ready to give up, I'll be like, well, but on the other hand, you know, you also say in the road back to you, you say uh, eights can smell someone else's weakness. Yes. I smell your weakness from a mile away, which I do, which is not good, right? And so- the darker side, the the still to be redeemed side of me, uh -huh. <laughs> will will often be very cynical about things. But coincidentally, at the same time, and almost in opposition or apposition, I I have this optimistic overview over it. So I could dismiss you as a human being. You know, we don't suffer. You know, fools lightly. I'm not calling you a fool, but you know what I mean. Like I might yeah. I might dismiss an individual. And say, well, yeah, they're not on my team, blah, blah, blah. However, here we go. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting thought. I'll have to process my cynicism slash optimism through the Enneagram. Yes. I mean, I think, um, you know, eights by, by nature are suspicious of other people. Huh. Um, they, they, they tend to, uh, they, you know, oftentimes with eights, and this is why eights usually have a small band of friends throughout their life. Right. Yeah. They may know a ton of people, but they really only have five really close relationships in the course of a lifetime. True. Um, and they carry those relationships forever. Right. They'll take a bullet for those five people. And uh, but I think, you know, eights are always sort of on the hunt uh, for what are you, you know, the, sort of the assumption that everyone has a hidden agenda. And, you know, you got to be cautious and wary 
of what other people are really up to. And, but once you've got the trust of an eight, you got it for life, right? Same mm-hmm. as with sixes. And, and, but there is a slight sort of cynical take on the world sometimes with eights, I think, that they have to be careful of, that cynicism that, that, that sort of cuts in. I was thinking just now about George Carlin's quote about, about, about cynics. He says, scratch any cynic and you'll find a disappointed idealist. Mm, that uh, is and so I think true. that's yeah, and I think that's where I was talking about ones earlier, right? There's if they get disappointed in their idealism, right, then it, they lapse into this kind of cynical posture toward toward the world, you know. Anyway, so now moving on to to compromise, mm-hmm. moral compromise. Of course, any of us can 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 do that, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Moral compromise can come to any of us. Do you think performers um, are more uh, like type threes? Do you think that they are more susceptible to it because there is a sometimes disconnect between their exterior and their interior? Yes, and I think this is tied into it. Now, let's use this phrase, right? If, if you know, what would be the opposite posture to self-knowledge and self-awareness? Well, it's self-ignorance, right? right? You could also say that it's self-deceit, right? Mm. And that this deceit is the problem that threes have to face, right? Which is um, I have adopt or I continue to adopt so many masks to win over the approval and the admiration of others. I want others to see me as a success. So I'll, I'll adopt any mask I, I need to in order to win that admiration from others. And the deceit comes in as self-deceit because after a while, they don't know who they truly are. They're just the sum total of whatever masks they're wearing. And they actually start to buy their own game. Hmm. Hmm. You know, they, but they start, you know, they start believing their own press releases. Right. You know? Right. And that, that can become a problem. Now it can become a problem for threes, I think, because they're willing to, you know, an unhealthy three, a, a three that doesn't have much self-knowledge. What'll happen is they're, they're, they're liable to cut corners. Right, right. Which is the definition of compromise, right? Yes, yeah. yes. So if, if it's going to make me look like a success, I don't mind cutting a corner to get there. Right. I'll exaggerate the numbers. I'll, uh, I'll, yep. I'll, I'll, I'll push down the things that don't make me look good. I'll exaggerate the things right. that do make me look good. And I think one of the keys, I, I didn't write about this and didn't see it coming, but I think one of the challenges to compromise is the tendency to compartmentalize, right? So if you have a, mm-hmm. if you, if you can separate who you are publicly from who you are privately, who you are at work from who you are at home, who you are on stage from who you are off stage, which I have a very difficult time doing. Uh, but mm-hmm. I just wonder if you have a personality type that, that lends to that compromise becomes easier because you're almost two different people. And you talk to people who have had egregious moral lapses and they're like, yeah, that, I don't know who that person was. Okay, so you know who, you know, interestingly enough, do you know what number on the Enneagram tends to fall into that? No. Ones. Really? Yeah. Huh. Let me give you a, let me give you an example of it. Yeah. Elliot Spitzer. Oh, right. Yeah. The attorney general for the state of New York, right? What did he do? He was, he's such a one, right? Huh. And he's, he's on this platform and he's, you know, going up against vice, right? right? And he's always talking about vice. And then you come to find out in his private life, right? Hidden away in the background is this other secret world of, you know, he's out with call girls and doing his thing, right? Yeah. And he gets busted for it. Everybody's like, oh, Mr. Clean. I think the guys on Wall Street used to call him Mr. Clean, right? Because he was always busting people on Wall Street for, for you know, uh, for wrongdoing, you know, I guess yeah. uh, f- financial wrongdoing. And of course, everyone just rejoiced when the guy turned out to have this secret compartment in his life where he was acting out. So here's, we call it the trap door of ones. They have a hmm. trap door. Um, do you remember Ted Haggard? Oh, I do. Yeah. Okay. So now here's a pastor who was, a, that's an Enneagram one who had a trap door. Wow. You know, he he would talk about someone who didn't see it coming. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's like compartmentalized. So you have a guy that's always railing, uh, and in his situation, I mean, this is the irony here, of course, is that, you know, Ted Haggard was always um, preaching against sexual immorality, right? And, of course, he's got a thing going on the side. Yeah. Right? In secret. So what happens with the ones is they're, pushing down all these animal instincts that they deem inappropriate. They, they keep them in the shadow. And, but because these are animal instincts, you know, energies, 
what happens is they got to get out somehow. Wow. And if you don't, if you don't manage them correctly, they'll come out in a very bad way sideways, right? Have you, uh, just on Ted Haggard, do, any chance you read Dan Harris's 10% Happier? And the reason I ask is he's got a, stra- a wonderfully empathetic take on Ted Haggard in that book. No, so this I haven't. guy is not a Christian. Uh, he would call himself a Jewish Buddhist, secular Buddhism. Uh, he's into the whole meditation mindfulness thing. ABC News guy, mm-hmm. Dan Harris. Anyway, 10% happier. He talks yeah. about his journey to where he is now and how he was reporting on uh, you know, fundamentalist Christianity or evangelical conservatism and how he actually has a deep affection for, in a, in a you know, platonic sense, for Ted Haggard prior to his fall and after his fall. He called Ted mm-hmm. Haggard for a year after the story broke and Ted was so broken he didn't call him back. And then finally he did and they struck up a friendship again. Fascinating. It's one yeah. of the most empathetic takes on Christianity from a non-Christian that I've read after a moral fall. So here's the thing about moral falls. I've seen them over and over again, and I've seen them in the church, I've seen them in government, I've seen them in business, right? Yeah. Literally, over and over again, it's the tile of your book. They'll say, I didn't see it coming. Yep. Or, and so I'm always like, I think to myself, boy, the Enneagram could have helped Ted Haggard. Hmm. Hmm. He, because if he knew that one's, typically have a trap door, then he could have said, I know myself well enough that that I have to, you know, be careful, guard against a trap door, right? Wow. A three would be able to say, hey, I know myself well enough that if I'm not careful, I will cut a corner in order to look like a success, Yeah. right? Uh, to cross the finish line first. You know, uh, uh, you know, an eight may say, I know that I have a particular weakness or proclivity toward cynicism, let's say. Yeah. I have to guard against it. So you see, that self-knowledge is just like, it's like a, a secondary witness inside of your head, your heart, that's observing yourself, monitoring your own behaviors, thoughts, feelings, actions, and, and saying, you know, just keeping an eye on it. And as you use the word, self-regulation, I'm regulating in real time. Yeah. So for me, I know as a four, if I'm not careful, I can lapse into cynicism or depression, you know, and when I see it coming up, uh, you know, a little bell goes off in my head because I know the Enneagram and I can go careful, right? careful. Hmm. And okay, so here's how I put it. The other day I was looking at a car and it has one of these radar systems on the side view mirrors so that if you start to drift into another lane, yes. it bounces you back into your own lane. It pulls the wheel so that you, you right? That's what the Enneagram can do. Uh-huh. It's like you start to leave your lane, you start to lapse in a direction that you shouldn't be going, and your mind goes, uh-oh, careful, boom, back into the lane, be careful. Now, That's if you don't have self-knowledge, you don't even know you're drifting out of your lane. Right, right. You know, or, or your right. wife tells you after you've already swapped paint with the guy next to you. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> Did you just like, say swapped paint? Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, seriously, I've seen so many leaders where, you know, my heart kind of breaks a little bit when I hear about a leader who's had a big fall because it's like, man, if you had just known your type and had some self-knowledge and humility as a result of knowing your type, you you would have seen that coming. Yeah, you would have. Anyone else that's susceptible because threes and ones to compromise or... Yeah, I mean, again, as I said, every type could. But for example, I think some have you know, uh, either proclivities or dimensions to their personality that they have to be careful. Nines, for example, might might fall into a compromised situation because they didn't know how to say no. Mm. Yeah. Um, they, they, they kind of merged with the groups or another person's agenda that wasn't a good thing and they went along with it because they were afraid of the conflict that would arise if they stood up against it. So my curiosity would be, what about sevens? Because you look at them and their lust for life and you see them, you know, just just whatever. Like my seven friends make me laugh. Would they be susceptible or not really? Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, uh, honestly, people tend to think of threes as the narcissists of the Enneagram, but really it's sevens. Oh, really? Yeah, for sure. Now, again, that's a very unhealthy seven. So I'm not painting every seven as a narcissist, right? I'm just saying that, uh, of all the types, if I was going to draw a parallel between a psychological, uh, you know, category like narcissism, I would draw it t- toward the seven. 
because it's all about their having fun. It's all about their, mm. and, and they'll they'll rationalize mm -hmm. doing things that- well, That's what I'm thinking, like one night stands, you know, right. Impulsivity. or you fall into addictions. Is that is that more typical of a seven? Yeah, um, yes. I, I, you know, I- you know, I've been in recovery for uh, a good number of years now, and I see a lot of sevens in the yeah. rooms, you know. Yeah. But actually, you know, you see every type. But sevens, definitely, because there's a struggle with impulsivity there, right? Right. And so I think, yeah, I meet a lot of sevens in the rooms because that whole act first, think later thing can get them into trouble. Same with eights. You know, mm -hmm. I meet a lot of eights. I meet a lot of fours in the rooms. So... You know, it's also partly genetics, I think. It's it's sort of a, a complicated thing. I meet a lot of nines in the rooms uh, because their natural tendency is to narcotize or to numb yes. out. That's a yep. big that's the big defense system for nines. That's their that's their major major defense strategy hmm. is narcotizing. And so I think that, you know, again, like I said, all types can lapse into moral compromise, but certain types just have to be careful, right? Yeah. Um going on, let's say let's talk about burnout for a second. Yeah, yeah. Eights for sure. <laughs> That's me. And, yes. and they don't even know they are. No. You don't even know it because eights are what we would call a self-forgetting type. Right. And they forget that they're not invincible. Mm. And when you forget that, you are a candidate for burning yourself oh, out. Oh, I'll tell you. I, you know, I, I, I thought before I burned out, the rules just don't apply to me. And then you realize, oh, they do. Mm -hmm. Okay, <laughs> apparently, apparently I'm human, right? And, and that was my story all through my 30s. It was as our church grew and it grew quite explosively. It was just more people equals more hours. It was really, really difficult. And you know, Ian, what's really fascinating for me is now for 13 years, by the grace of God, I've stayed out of burnout but it is such, a, I would say, daily awareness. Like this, is, this has become mm. who I am. And I write a little bit about it and didn't see it coming. It'll be a big chunk of my next book, which doesn't have a title yet. It comes out uh, fall of 2020, where I talk about, and I teach it in the High Impact Leader course. But basically every day I think about how much sleep am I getting? Am I eating properly? Am I exercising? Am I, uh, you know, am I even flights? I was talking yesterday with one of my, team and we're booking flights for an upcoming speaking engagement and I've got a new uh, person on the team and they were going to fly me out at such and such a time and one of my longer time team members is like he can't do a flight that late you know uh, and and there are limits mm -hmm. and I think as an eight prior to burnout I didn't think I had any limits and now on the other side I'm like oh if I respect those I get a much better run out of this and I feel a lot better and I'm, I'm much healthier and so I would say, and, and of course, ironically in all that is I've discovered the more I respect and understand my limits, the more I'm actually capable of. Oh, I mean, completely. Threes can hit burnout in a big way for all the obvious reasons, right? They'll mm. just, because they're just, mm. they're just chronic doers. They just can't stop doing, right? Yeah. Everything's about tasks and productivity and efficiencies. Uh, ones for sure can burn themselves out because there's always something to perfect. The world is so full of errors. Uh, they have so much trouble relaxing. That's a major feature for ones. Um, uh, twos will burn out because, you know, there's plenty of needs out there to, to meet, you know, uh, and... Helper, Oh, helper, my helper. gosh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that can happen in a heartbeat. I think the emptiness of success, I think, again, of threes, that, that would be a, a, an issue for threes. But, you know, I, th I think that's a universal, too, that, you know, whatever success means, it may be financial, it may be reputation, it may be whatever, uh, you know, we, we all are subject to that because usually whatever the um, focus of our pursuit is, right, our, uh, whatever it is we're trying to achieve, it's mm. always a lesser story than a spiritual story. Right. Yeah. And I think threes and eights would be particularly susceptible to emptiness because so much, you know, eights, it's a lust for power, for influence, for whatever. And then you're like, well, it's not enough. It's not enough. More is the best answer. And every time you hit a new level, you're like, mm, it's got to be more than this. And I wonder if, if for a three, they're like, I've worked for all of this and this is what it feels like. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm just, you're the expert. <laughs> I think that's true of sevens too, right? Mm. Because the, because their deadly sin or their passion is gluttony. So there's never enough. All right. There's never enough. Adrenaline addicts, the whole deal. Oh right? yeah. Like I just, I just need more. Right. But that disillusionment 
can sink in, right? Which is, this is this has not given me everything I, I had hoped for. Um, I agree with you, by the way, on disconnection. Did you hear about in England now, they now have a minister of loneliness in the government? I do, yeah, I did hear about that. They were, I don't think that made it into the book. It came out be, just before it was published. But yeah, they have a minister not of loneliness, but for loneliness because right. they Thank see you. it as an epidemic. Yes. And I think if, I mean, if memory serves me correct, uh, there's something like 200,000 people who will not, in England or the UK, who will not have contact with another human being for a 30-day window. Oh, It's like, are you kidding me? It's, 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 it's insane when you look at it. And so here we are. And the other thing, there was another study that came out last year, Ian. Uh, it was a big one. It was done by, I think, an insurance company of 2,000 Americans. And they broke down... Uh, feelings of isolation and loneliness by demographic. Mm. And what I would have expected is for the elder generation, people 70 plus, that that would be quite high. Their kids have moved away. They don't see their grandkids as much. Some of their friends have died. Um, you know, they're, they're not in the most social prime area of their life. But what was really surprising in the study is they reported the greatest sense of connection and well-being and then as it went down from boomers to Gen X to millennials to Gen Z, mm-hmm. uh, it got worse and worse and worse mm-hmm. to the point where Gen Z, which is essentially teenagers and college students, uh, per, uh, reported the most profound sense of loneliness and isolation. And they, conversely, are the most connected. 95% of teenagers are on YouTube every day. So they are the most hyper-connected generation that are now self-reporting the deepest feelings of loneliness. Yes. And I would add to that anxiety. Yes. Yeah. I, I've never seen more folks into their 20s even, you know, they there is this permeating anxiety. I think part of that is, you know, the amount of material that they're exposed to on a regular basis that would create anxiety. And they're just, you know, my kids struggle with anxiety in a way mm. that I did not, yeah. you know? And I just think, so much of that is the lack of connection, which gives you a sense of safety and security, and also just the amount of exposure they have to material online that, you know, we just didn't have at their age. You know, we just didn't have it. I'm doing a bit of research into that right now uh, for for next year's project, next year's book. And uh, one of the things I'm learning, like Cal Newport, I think it's Cal Newport, who said that the first d- truly smartphone native year. So, you know, when you went into middle school, you had a smartphone, which is only about a decade ago, um, that when that group entered college, because, you know, university colleges, they've had data on anxiety for decades, right? And it's always X percent. I'm going to pick a percentage out of the air. 4% of all incoming students will struggle with anxiety. The first year that the digital natives got to college, it went through the roof. Mm. Not just at one college, but every college. And now as they're looking back, we got several years of data on that. They're linking it 100% to smartphone addictions. And coming of age where your entire life, you, you know, your, your functional life, not when you were four, but from the time you were 11 or 12 years old, was spent on technology, uh, a direct connection between the use of technology and anxiety, which is why I think you see more and more people like Cal Newport's new book is called Digital Minimalism. Uh, you see people now buying dumb phones and uh, even Apple has come out with, you know, screen limits and do not disturb features. And I find for myself, you know, I'm super hyper-connected. I'm a podcaster, blogger, author, conference speaker, pastor, all those things. Uh, but my phone's on perpetual do not disturb And so I miss almost all my phone calls because unless it's scheduled, then I'll take it off. Do not disturb. But, you know, I I, like I don't need to know right now. We've lived for thousands of years without needing to know everything right this moment. And I think we have way more information than God ever created us to deal with. Mm. You know, think about the knowledge of the tree of good and evil in Genesis 3. This is fascinating me right now. But what was our sin? The, the first sin was we bit into the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, figuratively or metaphorically, whatever. Uh, and all of a sudden, now, now the scripture says that we gained insight and we gained knowledge, but what we didn't gain with that was power. Mm-hmm. Because God has perfect knowledge and perfect power. He also has perfect wisdom. We simply gained the knowledge mm. and now we don't know what to do with it. 
And technology has just amplified that to the point where we have all this information from world news. What am I supposed to do about the landslide that killed 300 people? What can I do about Notre Dame burning right. down? What What am I supposed to do uh, about the plane that blew up? What am I like? I don't know what to do with that. And a hundred years ago, our grandparents didn't have to deal with that kind of onslaught of information. Plus, you know, I counted up as I was getting ready to write this new book. Uh, I have 11 inboxes. Wow. Was any human being supposed to have 11 inboxes? I don't think so. But Instagram added an inbox. I have two Facebook accounts. They both have inboxes. I have private and public emails. Uh, LinkedIn has an inbox. I mean, you, you, Twitter has an inbox. You look at that and now everywhere you go and every, and get this, we used to go to work. Now work goes to you. So, Mm. uh, you used to have to go to the office to connect because that's where the files were. They had the internet or the server. And now that's all gone in the last five years. And we wonder why is anxiety on the rise? Well, actually, just as you were speaking, I was getting more and more anxious. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Anyway, this is research I'm doing for my next book, building on what I wrote and didn't see it coming. And uh, yeah, no wonder we're a little bit overwhelmed. And we have not yet developed the tools or the insight, I don't think, to figure out how to hit pause and to hit stop and even a filter to try to help us figure out, well, what part of this is helpful and what part of this is ruining your mm-hmm. life? And again, if you're a digital native, you don't know any other existence. One of the benefits I have, and, and I think you have at your stage of life, my stage of life, our stage, Ian, is we remember what it was like when this didn't mm-hmm. exist. Mm-hmm. And right now that's a huge competitive advantage because it's easier for us to turn it off and go back to another way of living. Well, you know, you just said something. We could That whole segment that we just did on anxiety... I mean, I hope sixes heard it, Enneagram sixes, right, who have a deep felt unconscious need for safety and security and who struggle against anxiety. I mean, anxiety is a major theme in the life of sixes. And so I do tell sixes all the time, stop watching 24-hour news. Oh, yeah. Uh, turn off your phones. Uh, you know, don't don't be on every text. You know, can you imagine the... So, and also I would say that all of that anxiety and all of that pressure for every single type, what it will do when you're under stress, what happens? Your your um, personality, those aspects of your personality that are unhealthy will just amplify. You know, Absolutely. your defense system will just go into overdrive, which creates more problems, right? I mean, no, you know what I've had to do because, I mean, I, I don't know, everybody's got unhealthy sides, but the unhealthy eight is not a fun person to be near and and the next day not a fun person to have been. It's like, really? I was like mm. that? Uh. And what I've found is on the other side of burnout as my self-awareness has gone up, I have had to simply give myself a break. And sometimes at two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm like, I'm calling this a day mm. because I know if I go into that meeting, I know what's going to happen. And nobody is going to be grateful for it. So I'm going to go for a bike ride. You know what? I'm not going. I'm not doing that. And you shut down. You take care of yourself. You have a reasonable night. You go to bed early. You get up the next day. It's a whole new day. Yep. Uh, But the unregulated me, that's where all the damage is done. It's done... You know, it's why what people never overeat at breakfast. Well, I guess you do, but you know, you're not like donuts everywhere. It's always at night because yep. you're tired and your willpower is broken down and your willpower is an exhaustible resource that actually diminishes over the day like a phone battery. So by the time you get to, you know, your four o'clock meeting and they're like, can we? And you're like, nope. Uh, all right. But you would have said yes at 10 a.m. You're just going to say no now. Right. So I'm, I'm paying way more attention to that trying to stay healthy. I think that, by the way, is one of the greatest gifts that you have with the Enneagram is it's not like, oh, I'm an eight, look at me, or I'm a three. It's like, oh, healthy, unhealthy. That is Mm -hmm. a gift. Mm -hmm. One of the things, Ian, that I've found so helpful is, you know, we did the the free assessment for a while uh, with our team and at our annual retreat kind of went through it and we had a lot of fun with that. But the IEQ9 is something I am running our entire team through right now, including mm. myself. You get a 40-page report, and we're not done yet. Like, it's literally in process as we record this. But I can't wait to do a much deeper dive into that because I think it helps us understand, respect, appreciate, and celebrate each other what we're learning. Uh, because mm. for whatever reason, this stuff lodges in people's memory. Yes. In a way that other yes, assessments just haven't. Yeah. 
Maybe they're capable of it, but they just haven't. I searched for a long time to find an Enneagram uh, assessment tool that I felt, you know, I could feel confident recommending to friends and colleagues, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm, I think the IEQ-9 is the, the, the best, most accurate, most, you know, scientifically ever evidence-based um, assessment that is available on the market. So I'm very proud uh, that the IEQ-9 is is out there. And I can't wait to hear th- how it's uh, affected your, uh, well, or impacted your team. Well, I'll let you know, when you when you uh, sent me the email and said, hey, this is just out, you want to test it out? I was like, absolutely, all day long. And then I emailed you back and I said, so it's an individual assessment. Can we do this for teams? You're like, hang on, I'm going to get back to you. So yeah, I, I will keep you uh, posted in real time. But I know, you know, the stuff in the road back to you and the earlier assessment have been tremendously helpful. And I'm reminded, I don't know whether this was like, I think you said this in a Don Miller podcast. Uh, I heard you say it on some other show where uh, with some of your corporate consulting, you now have offices, you went into an office and like they have a nine on the door, or a six on the door, or mm-hmm. a three on the door. Yep. And that's just to remind people, oh, you're walking into the office of a performer or a challenger or, uh, you know, a perfectionist. And I think we're going to be that kind of company because we just, we, it actually shows up in our conversation week to week. Yeah. Well, I'm so, I'm thrilled to hear that. I, I do believe uh, and just circling back to what we said at the beginning, you know, other awareness begins with self-awareness, yeah. you know, uh, and the more you know yourself, the more likely it is uh, and, and the easier it is to have empathy and understanding and compassion and insight into the into the lives of others. Um, so back to this list from your book, uh, yeah. you know, I, uh, I'm thinking now about the whole... Um, topic of disconnection, which we were just mm. mentioning in loneliness. Yeah. And I think right away of fives. Oh yeah. Well, I'm married to one and that's where oh. my mind went. Yep. Yeah. That it is, it is very hard for a five to relationally connect. You tell the story in your book of, you know, one of your best friends and you found out decades later has a brother that he just never happened to mention. That's right. <laughs> that is right. Like and you're like, thing. what? How did that get by me? Well, and and there, you talk about the compartmentalization, right? Yeah. Um, sort of segmenting groups in your life, none of whom are connected to each other, sort of pockets of relationships that are kept in isolation from one another. But fives definitely struggle with, with a sense of disconnection uh, and others around them suffer from wanting to know how to connect, but not knowing, geez, where do you plug in with this five? You know, it's like, how do I, how do I establish connection? Disconnection is a theme in the life of, of, uh, of self, dare I say, self-ignorant fives, right? Fives who don't know themselves well, who are not extending the effort to uh, remove the barriers to connection that, that they regularly, you know, put up. Well, and that's been a joy of being married to a five too. I should say for the record, I do I do believe I'm aware of all of my wife's siblings. So that's not a personal <laughs> reflection. So unless she's really holding out on me after 28 years, I'm pretty sure. Wow. But that, that wow. one of the great joys of the last 10, 15 years is her name's Tony. You've met, you've met her, Ian. Uh, that watching her come out of her shell. Uh, that's a, that's mm. what we call it. And seeing her really, and you know, the weirdest thing is she has deep friendships that go back to literally first grade. Like people we see every year goes back to first grade. And so she's very capable of deep and lasting relationships. But, you know, when she meets new people, it's, it's work for her. And it's been wonderful to see her as she becomes more and more self-aware and healthy uh, just to see her forging those relationships. And now she's calling me on it, which is good. Oh man, that is so good. So good. And let's finish up with pride. That was the last mm, one of the seven. Yeah. And of course, obviously for twos, it's an issue uh, because actually their their stated passion or deadly sin is pride, right? Right. Um, which is so weird because the twos I know, I don't think of as proud people. Uh, I know it's very, very subtle. And here's where, here's how it appears. Twos secretly believe, sometimes subconsciously, sometimes unconsciously, that they're not as needy as other people are. <laughs> and the, where the pride sneaks in is the belief that they have the, all the time, energy, resources, talents uh, available to them to meet the needs of other people. 
right? And that's yeah. a lack of humility, right? Because right. nobody has all the time, energy, resources, talents to meet the needs of everybody, <laughs> right? Right. So for them, the humility piece that they have to grow into is realizing, hey, I don't have all that stuff. And, and so I can only help so many people. And also for twos, it's the, they need the humility to state their own needs, which is very hard mm. for them. And that also is part of the pride piece, right? They have to um, overcome their pride so that they can actually tell other people, hey, you know what? I have personal needs too. Yeah. And, and, and not mask it behind this kind of, I don't have any needs, right? That's a, that's a prideful posture and they have to be careful of it. Wow. So this has been a rich conversation, huh? It's been a really rich conversation. I have learned an awful lot about uh, a book I wrote that I spent uh, over a year of my life <laughs> compiling. And now wait, I'm waiting for the second edition that to, for the publisher to give me a call so I'd include some Enneagram stuff in it. Oh my gosh. This is fantastic. This is, this is a really, really good, Ian. And uh, I've, I've always, every time we talk, every time we connect, every time I access your material, I learn more about myself. So... Hopefully this helped a wide variety of leaders, not just eights. Man, I, I hope so. Let me remind people of your book, Didn't See It Coming. Um, I, boy, what an exciting topic. And I, again, I'm, I'm envious because I feel like, oh my gosh, I could have used that as the title of my book. Didn't see it coming. An <laughs> well, Enneagram to use, not bad. You know, yeah, that's but a pretty I, good one. Think about it though. Didn't see it coming. An Enneagram guide to the unconscious. You know, it, it's like, you know, the more you That'll know preach. about yourself. That'll I know, preach. Ian. I know, man, for sure. Hey, everybody, you can learn more about what Carrie's doing at www.carrie, that's C-A-R-E-Y, Newhoff, N-I-E-U-W-H-O-F.com, carrienewhoff.com. Millions of leaders, uh, you know, access that site every year. You need to as well. Uh, you can go to him at Twitter at C Newhoff, Facebook at C Newhoff, and Instagram at Carrie Newhoff and be a part of uh, of that world. Listen to his leadership podcast. You can get that wherever you download your your podcasts. And Carrie, it's always a joy, man. I, I'll tell you what I love about mm. you is you are an effusive, energetic uh, person who just you know you bring light into the room, energy and light when you when you come into the room, and it's. Uh, I always, here's how, here's, here's what I would say. I always feel um, spiritually, emotionally, and psychologically enlarged and made better uh, as a result of our conversation. So I, I deeply appreciate it. I really appreciate you too. And I'm glad we've actually, I mean, we've had a couple of virtual meetings and some email back and forth, but it was fun. We were at a mutual friend's birthday party a couple of months ago and it was getting toward the end of the evening. And I looked over and I'm like, oh, that guy looks like Ian Cron. I'm like, well, actually that is Ian Cron. He would be at a party like this. And so we actually got to connect. And what I really appreciated, because sometimes you know how parties are a bit superficial. You chat a little bit and I'm a relator. That's my strength finder. So I'm going to mm -hmm. find the one guy I know best and just hang out with him for the whole night. That's me. Uh, but I was really impressed when we finally met face to face, how engaged you were. And uh, we had a great conversation. It was great to meet your yes. wife too. So, so very, very rich. And thank you for what you're doing. Thanks for what you're doing for, I know a lot of my listeners and uh, for the wider church, for our staff, for, for just hundreds of thousands, millions of people. Thank you. Well, my good friend, thank you. And to my Typology listeners, as always, thank you. And please remember the words of the great Oscar Wilde, be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. <laughs> Until next time. Well, that was rich. I'm super excited about, uh, well, the insights really that the Enneagram bring. And if you want more or more about my book, you can head on over to the show notes. Just go to kerrynewhoff.com slash episode 278 or you can also head on over to leadlikeneverbefore.com. Just search Ian Cron, that's C-R-O-N. And you'll also find transcripts for this episode, social shareables, and uh, some notes for your team if you want to discuss more. So everything's in the show notes. And thank you to all of you who are sharing this on social. If you find this helpful, please share it on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever your favorite platform is. It makes a huge difference. And I just want to say thank you. Honestly, uh, we read every rating and review. I try to tag everything I see on social. And it's getting hard some days, but I tell you, uh, we are so, so grateful for you. And hopefully 
this is a resource that comes alongside you and uh, helps you. That's our goal. And speaking of that, we will be back next week with a fresh episode. So I had a chance over the last year to meet a guy named Brad Formsma. And really what he is, is a specialist in generosity. Yep. And we're going to talk about how to get people to become more generous, the best and worst practices in dealing with high net worth individuals. A lot of you in the church world, you're talking to people who are generous with your church in the business world. Maybe you're courting investors. And how do you actually relate to them? I'll tell you, we had a fascinating conversation. Here's an excerpt from next week's episode. I just have to tell you, the day I spent with Herb Kelleher, yeah, and he's sitting at his desk and he's sucking on a cigarette and there's another one in the ashtray and they, I walk in and he jumps up and comes over and bear hugs me. And I'm 6'4", I think he's about the same height. Yeah. I hear it crackling over my ear <laughs> and he's like, Brad, it is so good to be here. You're my new friend. And he was eyes locked on me. And I'm going, this guy's got 50,000 employees. And we got towards the end and he says, I want to get my picture with you, but I came in here. They cut my hair. I got to comb my hair. And he ran down the hallway to get a comb and he came back. How's my hair look? And they're like, Herb, you got a conference call. And we can't say the four letter word that he used on your podcast, but he's like, "Uh, you know, I'm not doing it. I'm here with Brad. I will never forget that. Man, oh man, So can we give people that gift? And you know, you go, hey, wait a minute. I've got a church of all these people. How do I do that as a senior leader? So that's next Tuesday. If you subscribe, you get it automatically. And of course, it's free. And you can subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Now, remember, if you haven't taken advantage of the free 14-day trial for Huddle Up, head on over to servehq.church and sign up today. And you can get 20% off Church Community Builder by going to churchcommunitybuilder.com forward slash carry. Make sure you support our partners. Tell them I sent you. And hey, we're back next Tuesday with a fresh episode. I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.